Hello. Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and it's the big six oh number sixty. Um this week I've got Richard Cook, um, who is the person behind Specs Pistols, which if you don't know is an eyewear boutique, I think that's what he calls it. Um yeah, so I'd, I mean an eyewear store in the Westport of Dundee that specialise in beautifully designed vintage frames. Um, yeah, and just, I mean, the, the shop's really well curated. And one of the things that I mentioned in the podcast is that if you do see anyone wander about Dundee and they've got sort of cool or interest in eyewear, chances are it's come from Spec Pistols. Um, and I think... Uh, Richard's pretty modest about that, but um, he's done a great job sort of building up the brand and the presence across the city, and it's all down to his approach and his customer service, and we sort of dig into that and what what good customer service really means to him. Um, and one of the I mean, one of the things we go quite deep on is we we talk about um, some of his health conditions, some of them that were sort of apparent at school age which caused him a lot of difficulty um, and then a sort of later uh, diagnosis which in some ways have turned things around and gave him that, that real belief again um, and to be honest I mean I never really expected this conversation to go quite as deep um, but it's, I mean it's fantastic it's, it's a real amazing insight into the sort of ups and downs of, of his career Um and in a beautiful way, it, it champions the, the spirit and the, the brilliance of the Dundee design community. And Richard talks about how uh, one Pecha Kucha night in particular uh, really sort of changed his outlook on things and, and yeah, potentially completely changed his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll leave that into the episode. One other thing to note... Um, at a continuation from last week is Dundee's Design Month has now started, it's now underway um, so do go and check that out and all the events and everything else that's happening that's dundeedesignmonth.com where you'll find a calendar of all the events and all the things happening um, so yeah that was quite a long ramble wasn't it I should probably try and make these shorter anyway let's get just get into the episode, um, this is number 60 and this is with Richard Cook. All the way through school and stuff, I was um, always aware that I was a little bit different to most other people in school. So um, by that I mean not just the one trying to make everybody laugh all the time. I was very well aware that I was the one that the teachers um, would... Uh, would consider was not worth much academically and therefore not worth much beyond that either. Um, they used to use kind of words like, uh, you know, hurtful words that, that people would have used about 30 years ago for people who weren't considered all that bright. And they would openly use them in front of me and stuff. Um, and I think my way of coping was to try and make sure that I made everybody laugh all the time um, but in those days as well, I was often considered, you know, it's, it's not it's not unkind to say a daydreamer, but um, I was always considered to be the dreamer of the class, uh, not able to pay attention to anything at all. I built up a, um, a resistance to 
to the to the negativity that would come from teachers, even from like primary one, they would, they'd, I would I would be getting all these labels from teachers. It didn't bother me what people thought of me really, because I knew that um, I knew that I had what it took to make me happy and the people around me happy. I don't know if it's different um, in non-denominational schools, but certainly when you go uh, to a Catholic school, um, by the time you go to first year, your path's already chosen for you. You don't get to do the things that everybody else gets to do. You know, things like uh, going into a math class and being handed a colouring book, stuff like that. Um, I found it degrading, and it's no wonder that I didn't want to pay attention in these kind of places. Uh, I knew it was... So, um, kind of all the way through secondary school as well, I was... Some people could see that I had some talents, but they thought the talents were all for uh, attention-seeking, trying to make people laugh, trying to find reasons why I shouldn't be doing what was being asked of me, kind of thing. So at that point, did you know what your talents were? Well, no. No, not at all. I knew that I could... um, I knew that I could hold a crowd, whether it was uh, trying to make them laugh trying to make them interested, um, trying to tell them a story, um, anything like that. I knew that my peers um, all respected me enough, but I didn't really get the chances that a lot of other people got. Like university was never mentioned to me, um, art college was never mentioned to me. Um, As it turned out, I could have got into any of these places, but I didn't know that at the time. So when I left school, I applied for the construction industry, but... I think my, I think they were, I think my book was marked, uh, so I couldn't get a job in the construction industry either, despite everybody, every other boy that left at the same time as me, all getting handed a job on the the YTS program. Um, I was the I was the one that was left out. I didn't understand why. And then um, I got a call from a from a place that. Um, that wasn't YTS affiliated and they said you want a, a job washing lenses in a bucket and at the same time I'd been up to Green Street and applied by myself because I found out about art college so within the same week I got I got offered to be taken seriously for a place at art college and I got offered a job and job paid about £32.50 a week and <laughs> art college didn't pay anything so so I thought well washing lenses in a bucket is a start and um from there, I realised that if I wanted, I've always known that if I wanted to do something and, and, and I found it interesting enough and people believed in me, um, I always needed encouragement. And when I went there, I got a lot of encouragement. People could see that I wanted to work hard and that was enough for them. Um, so they, they tried me out in all different areas within the factory and I began to excel in all of them. And, and within a year or something, I was... Uh, supervisor and then uh, management and quality control supervisor. By the time I was 18 or 19, um, I was being I was being sent on correspondence courses and then by the time I was 20, I was, I'd, I'd got a place at university through, um, through these correspondence courses and uh, through summer school. So I already knew that, I, that if I concentrated and if enough people believed in me, then I could start to excel at something. So that was that was chosen for me at that point was uh, was lenses. So when you said you said lenses, mm-hmm. what did you expand a little bit on that? So what what, what did you mean by that? What's what's the sort of factory? It was a spectacle factory. So what would happen there is people opticians would uh, send in work by post, 
um, little worksheets. They'd fill out what prescription they wanted, what um, what frame size they wanted. And so it would be my job, or the people who worked there's job, to work out, to design a lens for each individual person, for left and for right, for distance and for reading. Work out the best form for the lens, how flat it could be, um, what refractive index to use, what the edge thicknesses should be to remain safe without giving distortions. Um, and th those were the days before coatings and stuff like that. So you can maybe put tints on them. But straight away, that gave you... You started with a blank sheet of paper. You, uh, from the prescription, you selected a, a, a base curve to use. Uh, now that's talking about the front curve of the lens, uh, and from there you'd have a rough idea. But you'd work out with the paper and pencil um, using different algebra you'd work out exactly what lens you would go and do and then there would be um, a case of taking the bit of paper um, and a physical bit of plastic sticking it in a lathe type machine and then going through about 15 different stages of cutting smoothing polishing edging and finishing and then quality control um, and that would be the, the actual finished pair of specs at the end of it of course you have to add the frame into it as well but we didn't make the frames at that point so it was all about, it wasn't just making the lenses, making sure the prescription was right and making sure it was within British standards tolerances. You also had to design the lens so that it was the flattest and thinnest it could possibly be or else it would just get sent straight back again. And I really, really enjoyed that. Not only that, but I enjoyed all the maths and physics that came in it as well. So that, that was Dundee based? Yeah, it was up at uh, Midwind, just a couple of hundred yards from where the shop is now. In fact, we used to walk past the shop that I'm in every single night after work. But it's, it's, it's a dull subject to an awful lot of people. And it's maybe, it, it probably would have been a dull subject to me as well, but I did wear glasses, so it was slightly interesting to me. Um, and it was the first time that anybody had ever actually said that they, um, that they thought I was good at anything other than maybe in the Scouts, <laughs> where, <laughs> where I knew I was good at things like reading maps. Tying knots, helping people—that kind of—that kind of, you know—the sort of things that everybody should be good at anyway. Um, it was the first time I was ever given something that other people found difficult, and finding that I was really, really good at it. And the only reason I was really good at it was because I used to work as much overtime as I could because I wanted to invest in myself, um, and I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And it was the first chance I'd ever had to do that. Because yeah, I mean, it sounds like. That it could have been a lot of things, but it just so happened that this came along and you embraced that. And it might have been whatever came along you would have embraced. Yeah. Um, well, what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to be a, either a graphic designer, and there was a, there was a chance of that. Um, but everybody was telling me there's absolutely no money in graphic design in 1996, so I was kind of put off of that, reluctantly put off of that. And the other things I wanted to be was a forester or a cabinet maker. There wasn't really, I was never encouraged to think, what do you want to do when you leave? It wasn't like I could choose a career path. And, and it's because I had, well, what, what are now diagnosable conditions? But back then it was just seen as being backward, being slow, being a dreamer, that kind of thing. So, no, I didn't have, I didn't have the choice of a career path. I had to take whatever was put in front of me. I had, I had, a, I had ideas that I wanted to do, but mm, I couldn't be a forester because you had to shoot deer. I couldn't do that. I couldn't be a graphic designer because <laughs> because I chose to uh, work in a lens factory instead. So you worked your way up 
in the factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, you must have felt like you had you had a passion. Yeah, totally did. Um, and it wasn't just me. Um, I I must I must only been at it about three years when they asked me to. They were going to, be to take over a factory in Glasgow, and they asked me to go and run it. Uh, me and another boy from from Dundee. Yeah, so I was genuinely like factory conditions, um, but that was through choice. You started at you started at eight and you finished at half past four, but I tended to start at uh, seven o'clock and finish maybe about eight or nine at night because um, I wanted to I wanted to be very very good at it, and I wanted the overtime pay that came with that as well. I knew that I'd, <laughs> I didn't I didn't like I didn't like working in factory conditions, and I knew that that was the only way I could get out of it was to was to make the best of what was there. And then try and make my own choices beyond that. So where did you go from there then? What was what was the next step? It was really it was really poorly paid. Um, and when I was living in Glasgow, there was you know there were there were times when I didn't even have. It was in Hillington, and I lived in uh, Queen Margaret Drive or, or Mary Hill or St George's Cross, Deniston, those kind of places, all very central. So uh, it was a couple of buses and a couple of trains every day, and I just didn't have the money. By the time I'd paid my rent, there was very little for food and certainly not very much at all for transport. So some nights you had like a two-hour walk. <laughs> so, crucially, what happened was my mum got very ill one night. Um, and I was home for the weekend. Um, and so it, it, was, it was clear, it was, it, was, it was obvious it was serious. So um, I told him I wasn't coming back uh, for that reason. It, it didn't go down well, but by then the company had been taken over. I didn't like the people I worked for. And I'm glad I did move because um, we were all needed for my mum. And then I got a job in Dundee. Um, this was now with one of the one of the high street chains. And again, they wanted me because they knew about me. They, they knew that I could do the job really well. And it was still a bit of a surprise to me that, I, that anybody would consider me to be management material because I knew that I was good at making the product. I thought that's what I should be doing. But then the only way to get on is to explore other aspects of doing the job. And I suppose management is another way of exploring it. So I stayed with them for about seven years. And well, actually, uh, the the ownership changed within that company as well. So the people who liked me, the people who brought me in, everything was fine with them. I had a great time with them. And then the next people that came in who took over, I spent every single day working out how they were going to try and sack me and trying to stay <laughs> step ahead of them. And it actually became a bit of a game for me. And then it became like a lawn sport for me every single day. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, it sounds like a joke, but it was dead, dead easy. Either I could wait for them to find something to try and get on to me for and try and give me warnings for and eventually give me the sack for or I could lay traps for them <laughs> so that they thought they had a very good reason to uh, to get rid of me and I could very easily explain my way out of it and at the same time, while they're publicly taking me on, um, it would be a little bit embarrassing for them. And I think it was a victory because eventually they gave up. And then, <laughs> then I went to work for another company because they'd heard of me and they took me on. But then it so you've obviously built a <laughs> reputation for yourself then. Yeah, um, not necessarily a good one. Um, people, <laughs> but good enough that other that you 
been a headhunter essentially. Yeah, I was, and, and, my, and, my, and my salary doubled um, overnight. Um, but it's because the people who I worked for, I worked for a company who are like the who are the the market leaders. Now, the company in Dundee, they were the ones who, um, I don't know why, I, I thought I had a lot of value and worth to them, and I would have given them everything if they only trusted in what I was doing. But instead, they'd be thinking that I was claiming more overtime than I'd actually worked and stuff. And if, if anything, it was the other way around. I wasn't, I wasn't claiming nearly as much as I was working because money never really appealed to me that much. Um but they, there was a death. There was definitely an issue of mistrust, and I, and I found out after I left that it wasn't just with me. They mistrusted everybody. So, at what point did you think, actually, maybe like all these companies isn't quite right for me anymore? Well, um, by by the by the time it was <laughs> the second company I'm talking about I was with them for about seven years as well, um, and you can't stay seven years with somebody if 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 somebody doesn't believe in you. Um, and as it turns out, they had a brilliant manager up in Aberdeen. And uh, apparently there was management meetings down in Edinburgh, down in Edinburgh and they'd be, they'd be saying, you know, there'd be like a, a Richard Cook section when they would uh, discuss uh, what I'd been getting up to and why I was unsuitable for the company. And uh, the one who was the, the lady manager who was the manager in Aberdeen said, I actually quite like Richard, if nobody else wants him, I'll take him. And uh, they said, well, he... You know, they did everything they could to dissuade her. Um, but when I went there, she's the sort of person who can see what people's talents are, knows how to nurture them, knows how to encourage them, knows how to reward them as well. And I'm not talking about just necessarily financially, I'm talking about with praise. And I think that's all I ever needed. Um, and then everybody in the company could see that I was excelling under this particularly good manager. Everybody recognised she was a good manager, but... Not everybody liked the fact that I was, you know, I wasn't deliberately showing people up, but people felt embarrassed that I was doing well, whereas under them I wasn't doing well at all. And, you know, they would see that it was down to maybe not necessarily their individual mismanagement skills, but um, <laughs> you could certainly see that um, other people found me to be other than what they said I was. Sorry for complicating that and making it sound difficult to follow, but... Trying to not be rude about people. <laughs> <laughs> so then there, there must have been a point at which you decided, actually, no, I want to try this for myself. Sorry, yeah, that was your question, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 yeah, so um, yeah, that was all kind of leading to that. When, so when I was getting on very well in Aberdeen, um, somebody came along and, and, uh, and decided to look into my... Um, expense claims uh, to see if they could find anything there but I'd never claimed any expenses in seven years <laughs> so there was nothing to find there um, and so um, they they asked my manager why I hadn't done that and she said well I don't know but maybe it's better to find out if we can get him his expenses back because he's clearly struggling with that um, so <clears throat> I was given like four weeks I was given up until until Christmas Eve to submit seven years' worth of expenses. Um, or I would be investigated to find out why I hadn't been claiming them, or, or something ridiculous like that. So I did, and I made a couple of mistakes, and then um, those were spotted straight away because I am absolutely terrible at admin, or at least I was terrible at admin back then. 
because of the uh, attention deficit disorder and, and uh, low concentration span and stuff. Uh, a terrible fear of admin, uh, which all comes down to other things. Um, but uh, so when they spotted the irregularities, um, they uh, I got suspended. Uh, I was I was offered ten weeks on full pay, but um, but it was the training I'd had over the last fourteen years. Every time I went into a hearing, I could see how bad they were, at, how bad they were at trying to investigate me and it just became a game for me as well to see how long I could stay suspended on full pay um, because I knew I'd done nothing wrong um, yeah that became a bit of sport as well and eventually um, I contacted them and said this is going nowhere do you want me back on Monday they said yes please um, I went back on the Monday gave it about two weeks and decided I'd taken that as far as I possibly could to get any enjoyment out of it anymore. Um, got a job, um, kind of a partnership type thing um, in independent opticians. However, that didn't work out well either because the person who was in partnership with um, disappeared with all the cash. So. <laughs> uh, but that's an important part of the journey because I'd um, invested an awful lot of not my money, money I'd borrowed from the banks and stuff to try and keep this firm afloat. But the way it was presented to me was, could I invest in the company like I'd always wanted to and that would save everyone's jobs. So I did and I went to a solicitor and it all got recorded properly. But when you're dealing with somebody who's as dishonest as they were, it doesn't really matter because it costs you money to try and get your money back again and they can just not pay you back and it costs you even more money to pursue that. So the result of that was I thought I'd... Um, got a partnership in a business but I didn't what I did get was about but what I got was an awful lot of debt lost my marriage, lost my job everybody else lost their job um, I lost my marriage because I didn't tell my wife that I'd borrowed the money to put into the business I thought I'd wait until it was starting to show a lot of return uh, but that was really stupid and in the end I didn't get any of it back um, and I found myself in a position where I had to make my own destiny. But I'd had three years of working at somebody else's business to see how to run a shop, how to keep it in profit, how to manage the um, expectations of customers, how to do good customer service. I really did well. The company, when I was there, we won the um, Princess Trust Business of the Year for the whole of Scotland you know, we set ourselves targets and we excelled them all. And although some of it wasn't necessarily down to me, a lot of it was. And I'd worked out that I could um, run a very organised and efficient business. So I knew that I could take that and work on it for myself, but do it the way that I wanted to do it, not the way that anybody else wanted to do it. Which was always my problem with everybody else anyway, was I felt that my ideas were stifled, strangled, drowned, whatever you want to call them. So is this when the sort of seed of what has now become Specs Pistols started then? Well, it was, there was never a deliberate path for it to look like it does or for it to be exactly what it is or anything like that. Um, it was all down to circumstance and I had always wanted um, my own shop one way or another. I'd been collecting vintage glasses since my first pay packet in 1987. Um, there was lots of there was lots of old stock lying about, 
in Centre Optics, which was the place that I worked. Um, and they would let me buy the stuff that they had lying about, you know, I think probably even less than cost price because they liked me and it was going nowhere anyway. So I had a bit of a collection. I had hundreds of frames over the years and not just hundreds of frames, but hundreds of really, really good frames, which I knew one day would be worth something to somebody or at least I hoped they would. And uh, I, the idea of the name, I was just driving down Perth Road one night and it just came into my head and I almost crashed the car. It was like a blinding flash of inspiration. Um, and I thought at that point, I, so I need to open a shop and I need to call it that. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, I'll learn something from that. But I thought the name was catchy enough in itself just to get people to come and have a look around. Um, the look of the shop, well, it's transformed. The layout of the shop's been transformed about three or, three or four times now since it opened but it was all down to what I could cobble together from you know furniture from Ikea or furniture that I had about the house um, that was to my taste you know I didn't I didn't have the money to to do it the way that everybody else does and I'm quite glad of that because I don't like I don't like the way that like the, the, the path that you've got to follow to be an opticians I don't like walking into them I didn't like working in them. And so I always thought that nobody else really liked going into them. It's more that they had to. Um, well, I mean, the, the, generally there's not, there isn't a lot of, of choice other than your high street retailers. And I mean, that's changed in maybe the past five, ten years. But I mean, it, it's only now that we're starting to see a development of more independence in that sort of market. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a, def a definite specific aesthetic that each of them has that's very yeah. recognisably opticians. Yeah, it was always considered that it had to be clinical. There was also like a basic minimum that anybody would spend on a refit. So they'd have an amount of money they'd want to spend either fitting out their shop or refitting their shop. And as long as it was over a certain amount of money, it didn't really matter what it looked like because to, because to an awful lot of people, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, if you're paying a certain amount of money to have something done, then it must be up to a certain grade. Um, and if that's what you want and that's what you get, then there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, but mine had virtually nothing spent on it. Um, just all I could invest in it was imagination. Um, it was, you know, it was it was filled with action men and and old toys and mismatched furniture um, and... There was nothing clinical about it. In fact, it was a relaxed atmosphere. Um, you know, it's, it's the first place I've ever worked where I've not been required to wear a suit. And I never understand why people have to wear suits in a in a shop environment because it doesn't it doesn't make anybody relax. And that's what people should do: is they should feel relaxed when they come into a place when they're going to be expected to. Well, well, for a start, in our shop, they're never ex they're never expected to buy anything. But in a lot of the shops that you go into. As a member of staff, you are expected to sell something to every customer that comes in or every browser that comes in. Every person that comes in the door, you're expected to sell something. And if you don't, there's questions to be answered. And not in an informal way either. Um, I remember once being uh, taken into the office and uh, asked why I spent more than 10 minutes talking to one customer and why I'd shown them more than more than 10 pairs of glasses because uh, you have to show them six and they have to choose two and you spend no more than four and a half minutes. But I don't know if that was a bad shop manager or a really, really bad best practice that the 
having a company put in place, but it's a pretty awful thing to do. And and of course the reason I did it was because the person wanted to see more than more than four pairs of specs. <laughs> Didn't necessarily want any of them because <laughs> sometimes sometimes what we hear from people is when they go into shops, um, there might be one that they don't mind as much as the others. And when they come into our shop, um, without without trying to sound like we're better than anybody or without trying to sound like we're showing off or bragging or anything like that, uh, people often say that there's um, a great choice in our shop that they can, you know, they could try on glasses all day and they could pick 10 or 11. Uh, I don't think it's because necessarily we've got, I mean, we have got better choice because we've picked them all individually but I think it's also because of the relaxed atmosphere because nobody's ever expected to buy anything um, people can browse at their leisure they can come in 25 times over over a year try on 100 pairs every single time I mean that's excessive nobody does that but if they wanted to they could and nobody would ever expect them to buy anything and I think that's what the difference is mm. not trying to give away any secrets but but then I think you, you're creating an experience that's thank you that's enjoyable and that you, you it's the same when I, I had the, the Cartercon guys on mm-hmm. in the podcast and they said that we don't care we want people just to come in and have a chat mm-hmm. and just this should be a place for people meeting and coming and socialising mm-hmm. as much as buying products at the end yeah. of the day yeah. and then you create that rapport with people you create that relationship that means that they will come back to you yeah. um, and I think from I mean you wander through the streets of Dundee and when you see someone with interesting glasses or eyewear, it's kind of like they must have went to Specs Pistols. That's the stuff I should be talking about rather than equations. <laughs> <laughs> and that's design of, that, I think, and how to avoid the sack. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that's, that's testament to what you've built. Well, um, thank you. I mean, it's not just me. Um, it's everybody who's... Uh, we've been dead lucky that every single person that's come to work with us however long or however short their stay is with us every single person that's been there has enjoyed it so much that no matter who a person gets when they come in who a person sees um, they always get the same experience and that is that it's good fun to try on the glasses um, and it's and it's important to be honest with people about what suits them and stuff uh, I keep saying it looks like Hogwarts when they come in I don't get that but um, a, a woman yesterday said it's because uh, there's a wand shop in Harry Potter and the man says, I know exactly the wand for you because we always, well, we don't always, a lot of the time when somebody ends up taking away a pair of glasses, it's the first pair that we've picked out for them because we think about it. Um, whether it's their face shape, their uh, skin and hair tones, uh, the colours they like to wear, their shape, anything. We like to we like to pick out one that we think they're gonna really, really suit. And when people try them on, it's a it's like a, a realisation for them that it's it's not gonna be a dull experience. Um people do like to come in, try one on and you know be surprised at how 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 nice it is on them. And then you can show them as many pairs as you want, and they can they can they don't have to go for that one, but a lot of the time they do, and and it's it's quite enjoyable to 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 give somebody that experience as well as to as to um, experience it yourself. So what is it beyond coming in and having the experience in the store? 
Uh-huh. What is it that you've done to help build this sort of community around you? Well, that wasn't me. That was... Um, we weren't long in there when Gillian uh, uh, came in and asked us to do Pecha Kucha. Um, and at that point, that was just after the, 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 the hideous experience I'd had before. So I was lost. Um, I was lucky that I had the shop and it was the shop that I'd wanted for an awful lot of years. I'd seen it and I'd wanted it, but it was never available. And one day it became available and I was dead lucky that it became available when nobody else wanted it. Uh, and we ended up getting the whole street to ourselves. So so we've kind of built the experience around around the, the shop and around the street. And then when Gillian came in um, and asked us to do Petri Kucha, sorry, I was saying that's when I was lost. I was lost then. Uh, even up to the point that the night of the Petri Kucha, I didn't even know that Petri Kucha was on that night. Um, and uh, I was making everybody a bit nervous and then I turned up and I did it. And it was a very enjoyable experience. But I met so many people just that night that I've become, I think, lifelong friends. That night changed everything. And I think Pitch Gucci changed my life. Because I went from this pretty dark path. I didn't know which direction to turn in. Other than I had this shop and I had to try and make something of it. Um, I met so many people that night and they all helped me. Um... Um, especially Gillian and Lyle um, but I also uh, Jenny Patterson was there and she introduced me to a, a lot of people and I think she could actually tell that I was a bit lost back then she made me sit there all night <laughs> made sure it was okay um, she introduced me to uh, my now partner Suze who we, we have a baby together which is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life she is adorable uh, but um, yeah, all the all the things that have happened to me in the last seven years that are the the, the it's there's been an awful lot of nice experiences, um, and I seem to be heading in a direction that's a very positive one for me and for everyone around me, and it all I think stems from that Pecha Kucha night, um, and that seemed I think that's why I've become part of this creative community, um, and I think that because I didn't. I maybe knew two or three people within that community before that night, um, but they're the ones that made sure that um, that I went. They practically dragged me down there. I think they maybe even helped me. They even picked my slides for me. <laughs> <laughs> Marched me to the building, um, and everybody I've met who's become a friend, who's helped me in any way uh, since then, has all come from that night. So it wasn't it wasn't me. I didn't do anything to create this. Uh, creativity around me I just um, I just became a part of it through invitation really because you said so I think in a lot of parts of your journey you've talked about belief and people having belief in you yeah um, and now you are the you're the figurehead whether you like it or not of Specs Pistols right yeah okay um, so where does your belief come from now well um, about a year and a half ago, I don't know if this is quite the answer you're looking for, but about a year and a half ago, I knew that I eventually had to go to a doctor and find out um, what was so different about me throughout my whole life. Um, and the doctor referred me to, um, I think, a behavioural psychologist at Nymel's Hospital. And uh, we talked through an awful lot there. And then I got... 
she, she could see a few things, and we got I got referred for uh, behavioural therapy, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. It's not. It's it's not a light-hearted subject because it it's it changes people's lives, um, and it's by no means amusing. I just thought it was for me, but then I found out that the reason I was the way I was throughout my whole life was because I had things like uh, I had I had Tourette syndrome since I was about eight or nine. Um, and thinking back on it, it was kind of crippling at the time. And that would be, that would be, I mean, teachers, if they were looking for an excuse to not believe in me, it would be because of how I was back then. I would pro, I was probably seen as uh, out of control because I would be, I had a terrible stutter for a start. I couldn't communicate for about two years. I couldn't do anything for about two years by way of talking. Um, the only way I could communicate was uh, was through making noises and jumping about, and but I also had a hyperactivity, which made it worse. Um, I also had a very low attention span. Um, so there's the the autistic spectrum is quite broad, and uh, it was like a big kind of pick and mix of a few of the different. Um, things on there um, they, they were able to see that you know that's what I'd had my whole life but my mum was really good she took me to a speech therapist back then um, when I had the terrible stutter um, and they taught me to use my singing voice to talk because when you sing you don't stutter which I didn't really know but looking back on it yeah, it's true which is why I also have a slightly different voice to an awful lot of people who come from a similar background to me. And it's not that I think it's all that different. Um, it's just that it goes up and down and it's higher pitched than most people's. Um, and it's and it's because um, my other voice didn't work. It's still there, the stutter's still there. Just that I don't use that part of my voice anymore, so it just doesn't come across too well. Um, and the Tourette's syndrome, um, I think that just that just kind of got easier as I got older. And now that I know what it is, it's a lot easier to control as well. Um, but if I get stressed, it comes back out again. But what I have learned is it's not my problem. Um, it's just what I was born with. If anybody does have an issue with it, then it's kind of their problem, not mine. Um, it's not the type of Tourette's syndrome where you're rude to people. Um, and that can't be helped either. The thing about Tourette's is none of it's voluntary. Um, but when I was at school, the teachers would treat it like it was some kind of... Um, choice, a lifestyle choice to be uh, disruptive, unruly, pay no attention to what you're supposed to be doing and to be making all these ridiculous noises and jumping up and down and stuff. None, <laughs> none of that was voluntary. And I think what a lot of people couldn't quite understand was if they were wondering why I was doing it and they were getting frustrated by it, that was maybe like 5% of um, the frustration I felt with it. And Believe me, I wondered a lot why I was doing it, um, and that's a lot for a that's a lot for a, a young guy to cope with. Um, but thankfully, these days they have um, they can spot these things. They know what they are, and they can be treated. Um, don't know if they can. We don't think they can be cured, but they can certainly be treated. Um, so I <laughs> can't remember the question. <laughs> <laughs> so I. Um... Where do you get your belief from these days? Well, 
at the start of that answer, I knew I knew what I was getting to, but I forgot something. Oh yeah, yeah. My belief these days is from going to that uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, and finding out from them that uh, I am. Um, I, I also I also don't like to say things that are going to sound boastful, but what I found out from them is that I am intelligent, intelligent enough to get by, and. Um, as intelligent as I need to be um, to do anything. Um, so I've got a lot of belief in that. I got a lot of belief when I was younger from um, positions of authority would always find a way of not quite trusting me. Um, but anybody below authority, anybody um, who was in my peer group, um, they would always hold me in quite high esteem. So I got a lot of self-belief from that. And believe me, the, when I was 16, 17, like a lot of young guys, I was confident. Um, but I was confident because I was popular, and I was popular because I'd made myself popular. I'd made myself popular because I couldn't do anything else. So I've always had some kind of inner belief, but uh, a couple of years ago uh, is when I really started to believe in myself because there were proper, qualified psychologists and psychiatrists telling me that there was nothing out of the ordinary about me, it's just that I had a, a different level of these kind of conditions to everybody else and uh, you know, those are the cards you're dealt with, there's nothing you can do about it and not to feel bad about it and I think that's where a lot of my belief comes from mm. So you, you've built the shop, you've built the brand and the, the sort of the reputation mm -hmm. of it um, so what is it about it that, that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that gets you excited about I, what you do? I've always I've always been excited about it. Um since it was washing lenses in a bucket. I've always been excited what, about it. What about what is it about that? Is it the given yeah. the uh, people ability to see? Is it the <clears throat> the sort of the style and the fashion element of it? Is it what what about it is it that gets you excited? Yeah, there's 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 a there's a, there's a passion about all of it, right? Um back then the passion was uh, to make sure that I could prove to myself and to everybody else that I could do something and I could do it better than most people and and, and that's that's where some belief comes from as well uh, and then it was um, believe it or not some of it was from um, some of the passion that got me out of bed in the morning that made me run to work was what could I do today to outsmart the bosses um, and that, that lasted until I got tired of it as I've already said uh, but now yeah it's 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 the look of the shop, it's the feel of the shop, it's the people who come in every single day. Um, I think if we had... I think we're lucky because we get the right people coming in all the time. Um, I've seen... What do you mean by the right people? Well, when I worked in other places, there'd be an awful lot of... There'd be an awful lot of people who were different. They just the whole the whole thing felt different in other in other shops. Um and I don't know if it's because they were tired of bad customer service or because they didn't like the look of the place or they didn't like the strip lights or they didn't like the carpets or they didn't like that they only had forty five minutes in their lunch to get things done. I don't know. But when we get people coming into the shop they're 
always relaxed, they're always happy, they're always open to ideas, um, they want to listen to Mm, they want to listen to ad- advice, um, but they also like to be listened to, which is very important. Um, they love the customer service aspect, and I th- and, and, and I and I think you've you've asked me loads of times and I've not answered it. But the the customer service um, thing is something that we do like to excel in, and it's not because we think that's going to make us extra money or that's going to get us extra people. It's because that's the customer service that I want from any place. Um, so what is it that makes good quality customer service? It's it's working out what somebody wants, working out how much they're comfortable. Uh, I don't want to bring the vulgarity of payment into it, um, but it's to work out how much somebody wants to spend, uh, giving them the best that you can give them. The quality of goods puts up, puts up or down the cost of price. So it's to give them the best quality, the best product you can for the amount of money they want to spend. It's about not trying to make them spend more than they want to spend. Um, and it's about seeing what extra things you can do for them all along the way from the minute they walk in. And, and it doesn't finish when they leave the shop either because hopefully they're going to keep coming back. They're going to keep recommending you all their friends. Um, I think once they're a customer, as far as I'm concerned, they're a friend and they're there to be looked after for as long as they want to be. Um, But um, we also have invested um, in what I consider to be quite an important thing is like packaging. Um, So when somebody gets something, they go, oh, look at that. That's great. Look how this comes wrapped or... They've, they've got their own bars of chocolate with their logos on it. And, you know, a bar of chocolate being given to somebody can often make them smile for, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour. It doesn't matter as long as you're making them smile. That's a smile they wouldn't have normally got if they went somewhere else. Uh, that sounds a bit cheesy, but, you know, it's true. Um, but the packaging itself, I like packaging. I like everything. to. I, I, I like to, to get something... And the packaging to be just as exciting to me as the actual product. Um, and I think when you get something in a plastic... But they don't know plastic bags. And please, anybody who gives out anything in plastic bags, I'm not knocking plastic bags, but I think there are better ways of presenting it than just handing out a plastic bag. Um, for me, anyway. That's what, that's what makes me feel slightly better about handing it over. Um, I want everybody to look at it and think, what a fantastic product. And a big part of that is the packaging. Um, but the packaging itself isn't the customer service. The customer service is making sure you don't over over promise something, uh, making sure you're honest about how long it's going to take and what the possible problems might be. Um, and when these problems do come up, it's not about what can I say to get away with this? It's about being honest and saying, I've made a mistake and I've done this. These things happen. I'm really sorry. This is what I'm prepared to do about it. Um, And it must work because um, I hope I don't jinx this, but in almost seven years, we've not had one single customer complaint um, that has gone beyond. We've had a handful of people coming in and saying, oh, um, I wasn't expecting this. Or... um, I didn't ask for this, I asked for this. 
I don't necessarily see that as a complaint. I, 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 I see that as um, a, an issue that comes up somewhere along the journey and it can be ironed out and it always, always is. We've never had an official complaint from anybody by the time they've uh, left the building with the, with the product. Um, and I think that's all done to making sure that they get what they want. And, and the last place I worked in as well, they didn't, didn't have any in five years. Well, actually, we did. We had one, but that's when I was off. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose like what you're saying is about controlling and crafting every touch point that your customer has with you, whether that's the conversation, whether it's walking up to the building and the surrounding of it, whether it's the shop front, whether it's the display, whether it's the toys, whether it's anything that you can have or, or, or come into contact with mm-hmm. that represents you mm-hmm. um, has to be well-crafted, well-thought, well-produced. You're such a good orator, and you know all the nice words. <laughs> and yeah, what you've just said is what I've been trying to say for about an hour. <laughs> people, people like the look of the street, like look of the shop, but it's also a big part of it is that a lot of people don't know about it, and people stumble upon it, and they go, "What's this?" And then they come in, and they come into the shop, and then the, the inside of the shop is slightly better than the outside of the shop. And then they find out that um, the, the range that we've got within the shop, which we spend a lot of time, we invest a lot of time and energy into that, um, they find out that the, what we've got to offer, the product, is even better than the look of the shop. And so let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So how do you decide what's right what, don't know. Um, to go into the shop? <laughs> right, so um, I the, the, the vintage frames that we've got are, are mostly all what, what you call dead stock. Um, all never worn, well, a lot of them are never worn, or they're reconditioned. So we have to choose every single frame there because we have to search all over the world for uh, vintage frames in good condition. But it's always um, whatever I or somebody else who's sitting there thinks will be nice, will be good to get in. And and thankfully, a lot of the ones that we choose, people do really like. Um and then we get uh, reps coming in from big companies. So, you know, people say things like, where do you get all your Ray-Bans from? And, and I, don't, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it's, it's because they don't, they've, they've not worked in that in that line of business before. Um, I would like to know if they think that I go around buying them off people and then sell them in the shop or, I don't know what they think I do, but but a rep comes around from a company, it's as, it's as dull as that. <laughs> With with a rep's suitcase full of samples and we choose the ones that we want, whether it's Ray-Ban or Fasafas Paris or um, or William Morris London um, or Vinyl Factory, all these all these nice brands that we've got, um, they all come from a rep, a travelling rep with a suitcase with sample trays and... <laughs> That can be quite dull for a lot of people, but... But they're curated by you, because you don't open that suitcase and go, I'll have them all. No. You go, these are the ones that are right. Quite often what happens is, when people say, can we come and show you, we'll say, yes, as long as you're prepared for us to not buy anything. And believe me, a lot of people can come in and present 200 frames, and we can go through it in six minutes and say, thanks for your time. Do you want a cup of coffee? We're not buying anything off you today, unfortunately. That happens a lot, but some people will come in, like um, when Fast Fast Paris came in about four weeks ago, we were blown away by 
how cool it was, how really exciting the colours, the shapes, everything was. And that's what excites me. And it excited everybody else that was there. Um, and so we, we got them in and then, you know, they've been, they've been horrendously successful. So we know that it's a good choice. And so they're coming again next week and we'll, we'll choose some more. Um, the only thing is, when you've got, when you got big money behind a business, like a lot of these new shops that are opening up that do make anything have, they, they tend to have a lot of big money backing and so they can afford to take on a massive range from a massive company and they've probably got, you know, because they buy so much off them, they've probably got an agreement where they can say, if we don't sell these ones, we'll send you all these back and then give us all your new ones. We don't have that luxury. We've just got to, we've just got to try and guess what's going to be good and if it isn't good, we've got to deal with the consequences which is being left with the stock. <laughs> So there's yeah, there's definite downsides to it. It's not all it's not all um it is all fun actually. Um but sometimes you're left with one or two bits that you don't know what to do with other than keep it. But then you were saying you're moving into actually redesigning, reworking frames yourselves as well. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 got our own range. Um there um what happens there is um we choose the acetates um, look at shapes, work out what colours and shapes we want. They can say you can have them out of these 20 different acetates. That's what's available to us. So what's, what's an acetate? An acetate is just like the plastic that the... You know, when, when you buy frames that aren't metal, mm -hmm. usually plastic, like the one you've got on, that'll be at one point a sheet of acetate in a particular colour. Now, the company that are making us for them, making them for us, they are a little family-run um, workshop just outside Athens. They're making them for us out of a selection of 20 acetates. And so um, what we can say to them is we would like you to make uh, one... one. Uh, we would like you to make five colours of this frame here in this shape and we want this to be sunglasses with flat lenses or we want this to be... Uh, clear lenses so that people can choose to have their prescription in it or um, we want these kind of joints put in them um, there's a lot of things like we don't say to them we want this angle put on the frame because there's kind of standards for comfort and vision that everybody goes with anyway um, so we can we can say this is how this is the colour we want this is the shape that we want this is how we want it to look and these are the sizes that it's re it's sensible enough to go with so uh, that, that's the boring part. Um, the nice part is um, we get to choose a name for the range um, and we get to work out how they're displayed because um, other people get their own ranges, but it's all about how you make it look. Um, so anyway, we've called ours Wild and Lonely by Specs Pistols. And it's I think it's a great name, but it's borrowed off of uh, an Associates album, which is also called Wild and Lonely. Uh, now, the idea behind that is they're all named after songs written by people from Dundee or people who have lived in Dundee. Uh, so, Wild and Lonely is the name of an associate's album, but we also have... Um, we have Party Fears 2 is the name of a frame and Club Country is the name of another frame. They're both associates' songs. And associates, um, definitely one of my favourite bands of all time. And they're from Dundee. And Billy McKenzie's a massive hero. So because of that, we've got one called William It Was Really Nothing, which is a Smith song, but of course that's rumoured to be about Billy McKenzie. Uh, we've got Rip It Up by Orange Juice. Um, 
we've got Queen of My Soul by Average White Band. Um, we've got um, Typical Time by The View. Uh, we've even got, controversially, um, Born in a Storm by Deacon Blue. I say controversially because, um, like, like a lot of bands, um, some people can say, why, why have you got that? The reason I've got that is because I really liked that song. And Ricky Ross is from Dundee. Um, and it came at a time in my life where it actually meant something to me. Um, all the songs that are in it mean something to me. Um, we've got uh, songs by Spare Snare. Uh, we've got uh, other ones uh, lined up as well for new ranges that we want to introduce this year. Um, so, yeah, they're all handpicked by us. They're all in the colours that we want, but we could change the colours up all the time if they say we can do this acetate now and we get a different colour. Which means if you buy one of those frames, you're likely getting one that there's not going to be any more than four or five uh, ever made in that frame. In some cases, this is only one or two ever made. Um, and um, we've got um, we've got one or two people uh, out with Dundee um, who are trying to line up some... Some pairs of these um, exciting people who don't want to go into it because it doesn't happen. But <laughs> there are some big names interested who want to try them on because they've heard about them. So one question, just to just to finish up. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your favourite thing about Dundee? Mm, I think it's got to be the people. Always has been. What about the people? Is well, that's what, that's what separates Dundee from everybody else. So... There's, it's it's not a secret that Dundee's had to deal with uh, unemployment and everything that comes with that. You know, uh, pockets of poverty all over the town. Uh, they've got the they've got the rich and poor divide, same as everybody else. Um, but what you don't get in Dundee that you get in an awful lot of other places is uh, hatred for people who aren't quite the same as you, whether that's sectarian hatred or uh, racial hatred. Um, I mean, you are going to get it. You are going to get it here and there from certain places, um, but uh, by and large, you don't see it in Dundee. Dundee's a safe place to go about, and I think just about every single person you'll ever bump into, in some way or another, will want to look out for you if they get a chance to. Um, I'm not saying I'm not saying people are going to run up to you in the street and offer to carry your messages, um, but it's such a friendly town. It's small enough that you don't know everybody and everybody doesn't know your business, but um, but it feels like you can lean on just about anybody any of any any time you need to because it's because it's a, it's a it's a very nice community to live in. Um, it's close knit. But when people come into Dundee from anywhere else, whether it's another country or another part of Scotland or um, a part of England or Wales or Ireland, when people come here, they tend to like it an awful lot. In fact, some people never go back to where they came from after they've been to Dundee. Um, and it's because um, it's because the, it's because there's 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 a warmth about the people, um, and I and I think that I think that goes a long way. And we don't care if um, other people, you know, but Dundee gets a bad press. A lot of people have negative thoughts about Dundee, but the people in Dundee don't really care about it. You know, people can think what they want. It's not going to change us. Yeah. Nice. Oh, thank you very much. Um, if people want to come and find you, wander into the shop and meet you and, and have a look at your, your range, mm-hmm. um, 
Where did they find you? Well, most people know about the Westport um, in Dundee, um, but if you don't, it's at the west end of the Overgate, so top of South Tay Street is where Westport starts. Westport's about mm, 500 yards long. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a great big old pub there uh, called The Globe with flats on top of it. It's a really distinctive building. It stands on its own between the two roads and we're a little medieval lane. <laughs> well, not quite. We're a little old lane, cobbled street behind the globe, and we're the only shop in it, right in the middle. And online, if anyone wants to check you out there? Specspistols.com. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Richard. Um, yeah, thanks to him for coming on and doing the podcast um, and for being so open and honest. Um, yeah, things got quite deep and yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic episode and, and he's got such a great, great story and an amazing brand and store that he's built up over time to become a sort of real sort of stalwart in the sort of, um, the creative community, um, one of the real sort of prominent independents in the city as well. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know it, if you haven't been in, just go in. Go and meet Richard. Um, he's always got time for everyone. Um, yeah, he's real chatty. Uh, and it's even just, it's a great place just to drop in. So yeah, do go and visit him in the Westport. Um, and if you don't already, or if you're new to the podcast, the um, best way to stay up to date is Twitter and Instagram. It's at cccdundee. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash cccdundee. Um, but that's it. So this week was number five of six of this block. Um, yeah, so it's six of six next week. And as a little teaser, um, yeah, next week's guest has worked with some pretty amazing people. Um, predominantly in the music business, um, from the Pet Shop Boys to... Yoko Ono, to Coldplay, to... Yeah, I mean, the people who's worked there are just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, that's just a little teaser for next week's episode. And until then... Goodbye. <laughs>